Section 25 of The History of Rome, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of Rome, Volume 1, by Livy. Translated by William Maspin Roberts. Book 4, Chapters 30 to 41. Chapter 30. Truce with the Equi, Internal Affairs. In the city, the tribunes made great efforts to secure the election of consular tribunes for the next year, but they failed. Lucius Papirius Crassus and Lucius Julius were made consuls. Envoys came from the Equi to ask from the Senate a treaty as between independent states. Instead of this, they were offered peace on condition they acknowledged the supremacy of Rome. They obtained a truce for eight years. After the defeat which the Volscians had sustained on Algidus, their state was distracted by obstinate and bitter quarrels between the advocates of war and those of peace. There was quiet for Rome in all quarters. The tribunes were preparing a popular measure to fix the scale of fines, but one of their body betrayed the fact to the consuls, who anticipated the tribunes by bringing it in themselves. The new consuls were Lucius Sergius Fidenus, for the second time, and Hostius Lucretius Tercipitinus. Nothing worth recording took place in their consulship. They were followed by Aulus Cornelius Cossus and Titus Quinctius Ponus for the second time. The Veientines made inroads into the Roman territory, and it was rumored that some of the Fidenates had taken part in them. Lucius Sergius, Quintus Servilius, and Mamercus Amilius were commissioned to investigate the affair. Some were interned at Ostia, as they were unable to account satisfactorily for their absence from Fidene at that time. The number of colonists was increased, and the lands of those who had perished in the war were assigned to them. Very great distress was caused this year by a drought. Not only was there an absence of water from the heavens, but the earth, through lack of its natural moisture, barely sufficed to keep the rivers flowing. In some cases, the want of water made the cattle die of thirst round the dried-up springs and brooks, in others, they were carried off by the mange. This disease spread to the men who had been in contact with them. At first, it attacked the slaves and agriculturalists. Then the city was infected. Nor was it only the body that was affected by the pest. The minds of men also became a prey to all kinds of superstitions, mostly foreign ones. Pretended soothsayers went about introducing new modes of sacrificing and did a profitable trade amongst the victims of superstition until at last the sight of strange, un-Roman modes of propitiating the wrath of the gods in the streets and chapels brought home to the leaders of the commonwealth the public scandal which was being caused. The aediles were instructed to see to it that none but Roman deities were worshipped nor in any other than the established fashion. War with Veii 
Hostilities with the Veientines were postponed till the following year, when Caius Servilius Ahala and Lucius Papirius Mugellanus were the consuls. Even then, the formal declaration of war and the dispatch of troops were delayed on religious grounds. It was considered necessary that the Fetials should first be sent to demand satisfaction. There had been recent battles with the Veientines at Nomentum and Fidene, and a truce had been made, not a lasting peace, but before the days of truce had expired, they had renewed hostilities. The Fetials, however, were sent, but when they presented their demands, in accordance with ancient usage, they were refused a hearing. A question then arose whether war should be declared by the mandate of the people, or whether a resolution passed by the Senate was sufficient. The tribunes threatened to stop the levying of troops, and succeeded in forcing the consul Quinctius to refer the question to the people. The centuries decided unanimously for war. The plebs gained a further advantage in preventing the election of consuls for the next year. Chapter 31 Four consular tribunes were elected. Titus Quinctius Poenus, who had been consul, Gaius Furius, Marcus Postumius, and Aulus Cornelius Cossus. Cossus was warden of the city. The other three, after completing the levy, advanced against Veii, and they showed how useless a divided command is in war. By each insisting on his own plans, when they all held different views, they gave the enemy his opportunity. For whilst the army was perplexed by different orders, some giving the signal to advance whilst the others ordered a retreat, the Veientines seized the opportunity for an attack. Breaking into a disorderly flight, the Romans sought refuge in their camp, which was close by. They incurred more disgrace than loss. The commonwealth, unaccustomed to defeat, was plunged in grief. They hated the tribunes and demanded a dictator. All their hopes rested on that. Here, too, a religious impediment was met with, as a dictator could only be nominated by a consul. The augurs were consulted and removed the difficulty. Aulus Cornelius nominated Mamercus Aemilius as dictator. He himself was appointed by him master of the horse. This proved how powerless the action of the censors was to prevent a member of a family unjustly degraded from being entrusted with supreme control when once the fortunes of the state demanded real courage and ability. Elated by their success, the Veientines sent envoys round to the cantons of Etruria, boasting that three Roman generals had been defeated by them in a single battle. As, however, they could not induce the National Council to join them, they collected from all quarters volunteers who were attracted by the prospect of booty. The Fidenates alone decided to take part in the war, and as though they thought it impious to begin war otherwise than with a crime, they stained their weapons with the blood of the new colonists, as they had previously with the blood of the Roman ambassadors. Then they joined the Veientines. The chiefs of the two peoples consulted whether they should make Veii or Fidene the base of operations. Fidene appeared the more suitable. 
The Veientines accordingly crossed the Tiber and transferred the war to Fidene. Chapter 32 Capture and Destruction of Fidene Very great was the alarm in Rome. The army, demoralized by its ill success, was recalled from Veii. An entrenched camp was formed in front of the Colline Gate. The walls were manned, the shops and law courts closed, and a cessation of all business in the forum ordered. The whole city wore the appearance of a camp. The dictator dispatched criers through the streets to summon the anxious citizens to an assembly. When they were gathered together, he reproached them for allowing their feelings to be so swayed by slight changes of fortune that, after meeting with an insignificant reverse, due not to the courage of the enemy or the cowardice of the Roman army, but simply to want of harmony amongst the generals, they should be in a state of panic over the Veientines, who had been defeated six times, and Fidene, which had been captured almost more frequently than it had been attacked. Both the Romans and the enemy were the same that they had been for so many centuries. Their courage, their prowess, their arms were what they had always been. They had as dictator the same Mamercus Aemilius who, at Nomentum, defeated the combined forces of Veii and Fidene, supported by the Faliscans. The master of the horse would, in future battles, be the same Aulus Cornelius who killed Lars Tolumnius, king of Veii, before the eyes of the two armies, and carried the Spolia Opima to the temple of Jupiter Feretrius. They must take up arms, remembering that on their side were triumphs and the spoils of victory, on the side of the enemy, the crime against the law of nations in the assassination of the ambassadors, and the massacre of the colonists at Fidene in a time of peace a broken truce, a seventh unsuccessful revolt. Remembering all this, they must take up arms. When once they were in touch with their enemy, he was confident that the guilt-stained foe would not long rejoice over the disgrace that had overtaken the Roman army, and the people of Rome would see how much better service was rendered to the Republic by those who had, for the third time, nominated him dictator, than by those who had cast a slur upon his second dictatorship because he had deprived the censors of their autocratic power. After reciting the usual vows, he marched out and fixed his camp a mile and a half on this side of Fidene, with the hills on his right and the Tiber on his left. He ordered Titus Quinctius to secure the hills and to seize, by a concealed movement, the ridge in the enemy's rear. On the following day, the Etruscans advanced to battle in high spirits at their success the previous day, which had been due rather to good luck than good fighting. After waiting a short time till the scouts reported that Quinctius had gained the height near the citadel of Fidene, the dictator ordered the attack, and led the infantry at a quick double against the enemy. He gave instructions to the master of the horse not to begin fighting till he got orders. When he needed the assistance of the cavalry, he would give him the signal, 
Then he must take his part in the action, inspired by the memory of his combat with Tolumnius, of the Spolia Opima, and of Romulus and Jupiter Ferretrius. The legions charged with great impetuosity. The Romans expressed their burning hatred in words as much as in deeds. They called the Fidenates traitors, the Veientines brigands, breakers of truces, stained with the horrible murder of the ambassadors and the blood of Roman colonists, faithless as allies, cowardly as soldiers. Chapter 33 The enemy were shaken at the very first onset, when suddenly the gates of Fidene were flung open and a strange army sallied forth, never seen or heard of before. An immense multitude, armed with firebrands, and all waving blazing torches, rushed like men possessed on the Roman line. For a moment, this extraordinary mode of fighting put the Romans into a fright. Then the dictator called up the master of the horse with his cavalry, and sent to order Quinctius back from the hills, whilst he himself, encouraging his men, rode up to the left wing, which looked more like a conflagration than a body of combatants, and had given way through sheer terror at the flames. He shouted to them, Are you overcome with smoke like a swarm of bees? Will you let an unarmed enemy drive you from your ground? Will you not put the fire out with your swords? If you must fight with fire, not with arms... Will you not snatch those torches away and attack them with their own weapons? Come, remember the name of Rome and the courage you have inherited from your fathers. Turn this fire upon the enemy's city and destroy with its own flames the Fidene which you could not conciliate by your kindness. The blood of ambassadors and colonists, your fellow countrymen and the devastation of your borders call upon you to do this. At the dictator's command, the whole line advanced. Some of the torches were caught as they were thrown. Others were wrenched from the bearers. Both armies were armed with fire. The master of the horse, too, on his part, invented a new mode of fighting for his cavalry. He ordered his men to take the bits off the horses, and, giving his own horse his head and putting spurs to it, he was carried into the midst of the flames, whilst the other horses, urged into a hard gallop, carried their riders against the enemy. The dust they raised, mixed with the smoke, blinded both horses and men. The sight which had terrified the infantry had no terrors for the horses. Wherever the cavalry moved, they left the slain in heaps. At this moment, fresh shouts were heard, creating astonishment in both armies. The dictator called out that Quinctius and his men had attacked the enemy in the rear, and on the shouts being renewed, he pressed his own attack with more vigor. When the two bodies in two distinct attacks had forced the Etruscans back both in front and rear and hemmed them in so that there was no way of escape either to their camp or to the hills, for in that direction the fresh enemy had intercepted them, and the horses, with their reins loose, were carrying their riders about in all directions, 
Most of the Veientines made a wild rush for the Tiber. The survivors amongst the Fidenates made for their city. The flight of the terrified Veientines carried them into the midst of slaughter. Some were killed on the banks. Others were driven into the river and swept away by the current. Even good swimmers were carried down by wounds and fright and exhaustion. Few out of the many got across. The other body made their way through their camp to their city, with the Romans in close pursuit, especially Quinctius and his men, who had just come down from the hills, and, having arrived towards the close of the struggle, were fresher for the work. Chapter 34 the latter entered the gates pell-mell with the enemy, and as soon as they had mounted the walls they signaled to their friends that the city was taken. The dictator had now reached the enemy's abandoned camp, and his soldiers were anxious to disperse in quest of booty, but when he saw the signal, he reminded them that there was richer spoil in the city, and led them up to the gate. Once within the walls, he proceeded to the citadel, toward which he saw the crowd of fugitives rushing. The slaughter in the city was not less than there had been in the battle, until, throwing down their arms, they surrendered to the dictator and begged that at least their lives might be spared. The city and camp were plundered. The following day the cavalry and centurions each received one prisoner, selected by lot, as their slave, those who had shown conspicuous gallantry two. The rest were sold under the chaplet. The dictator led back in triumph to Rome his victorious army, laden with spoil. After ordering the master of the horse to resign his office, he resigned office himself on the sixteenth day after his nomination, surrendering amidst peace the sovereign power which he had assumed at a time of war and danger. Some of the analysts have recorded a naval engagement with the Veientines at Fidene, an incident as difficult as it is incredible. Even today the river is not broad enough for this, and we learn from ancient writers that it was narrower then. Possibly, in their desire for a vainglorious inscription, as often happens, they magnified a gathering of ships to prevent the passage of the river into a naval victory. Chapter 35. Peace Abroad, Domestic Politics. The following year had for consular tribunes Aulus Sempronius Atratinus, Lucius Quintius Cincinnatus, Lucius Furius Medullinus, and Lucius Horatius Barbatus. A truce for eighteen years was granted to the Veientines, and one for three years to the Equi, though they had asked for a longer one, there was also a respite from civic disturbances. The following year, though not marked by either foreign war or domestic troubles, was rendered memorable by the celebration of the games, vowed on the occasion of the war seven years before, which were carried out with great magnificence by the consular tribunes and attended by large numbers from the surrounding cities. The consular tribunes were Appius Claudius Crassus, Spurius Nautius Rutilus, Lucius Sergius Fidenus, and Sextus Julius Julus. 
The spectacle was made more attractive to the visitors by the courteous reception which it had been publicly decided to give them. When the games were over, the tribunes of the plebs began to deliver inflammatory harangues. They reproached the populace for allowing their stupid admiration of those whom they really hated to keep them in perpetual servitude. Not only did they lack the courage to claim their share in the chance of preferment to the consulship, but even in the election of consular tribunes, which was open to both patricians and plebeians, they never thought of their tribunes or their party. They need be no longer surprised that no one interested himself in the welfare of the plebs. Toil and danger were incurred for those objects from which profit and honor might be expected. There was nothing which men would not attempt if rewards were held out proportionate to the greatness of the effort. But that any tribune of the plebs should rush blindly into contests which involved enormous risks and brought no advantage which he might be certain would make the patricians whom he opposed persecute him with relentless fury, whilst amongst the plebeians on whose behalf he fought he would not be in the slightest degree more honored, was a thing neither to be expected nor demanded. Great honors made great men. When the plebeians began to be respected, every plebeian would respect himself. Surely they might now try the experiment in one or two cases to prove whether any plebeian is capable of holding high office or whether it would be little short of a miracle for any one sprung from the plebs to be at the same time a strong and energetic man. After a desperate fight, they had secured the election of military tribunes with consular powers for which plebeians were eligible men of tried ability, both at home and in the field, became candidates. For the first few years they were knocked about, rejected, treated with derision by the patricians. At last they declined to expose themselves to these affronts. They saw no reason why a law should not be repealed which simply legalized what would never happen. They would have less to be ashamed of in the injustice of the law than in being passed over in the elections as though unworthy to hold office. Chapter 36 Harangues of this sort were listened to with approval, and some were induced to stand for a consular tribuneship, each of them promising to bring in some measure in the interest of the plebs. Hopes were held out of a division of the state domain and the formation of colonies, whilst money was to be raised for the payment of the soldiers by a tax on the occupiers of the public land. The consular tribunes waited till the usual exodus from the city allowed a meeting of the Senate to be held in the absence of the tribunes of the plebs, the members who were in the country being recalled by private notice. A resolution was passed that, owing to rumors of an invasion of the Hernican territory by the Volskians, the consular tribunes should go and find out what was happening, and that, at the forthcoming elections, consuls should be chosen. On their departure, they left Appius Claudius, the son of the December, to act as warden of the city, a young man of energy, and imbued from his infancy with a hatred of the plebs and its tribunes. 
The tribunes had nothing on which to raise a contest, either with the consular tribunes, who were absent, the authors of the decree, or with Appius, as the matter had been settled. Chapter 37. The Seizure of Capua. War with the Volscians. The consuls elected were Gaius Sempronius Atratinus and Quintus Fabius Vibulanus. There is recorded under this year an incident which occurred in a foreign country, but still important enough to be mentioned, namely, the capture of Volturnus, an Etruscan city now called Capua, by the Samnites. It is said to have been called Capua from their general, but it is more probable that it was so called from its situation in a Champagne country, Campus. It was after the Etruscans weakened by a long war, had granted them a joint occupancy of the city and its territory that they seized it. During a festival, whilst the old inhabitants were overcome with wine and sleep, the new settlers attacked them in the night and massacred them. After the proceedings described in the last chapter, the above-named consuls entered on office in the middle of December, by this time, intelligence as to the imminence of a Volscian war had been received not only from those who had been sent to investigate, but also from the Latins and Hernicans, whose envoys reported that the Volscians were devoting greater energy than they had ever done before to the selection of their generals and the levying of their forces. The general cry amongst them was that either they must consign all thoughts of war to eternal oblivion and submit to the yoke, or else they must encourage endurance and military skill, be a match for those with whom they were fighting for supremacy. These reports were anything but groundless. But not only did the Senate treat them with comparative indifference, but Gaius Sempronius, to whom that field of operations had fallen, imagined that as he was leading the troops of a victorious people, against those whom they had vanquished, the fortune of war could never change. Trusting to this, he displayed such rashness and negligence in all his measures that there was more of the Roman discipline in the Volscian army than there was in the Roman army itself. As often happens, fortune waited upon desert. In the very first battle, Sempronius made his dispositions without plan or forethought. The fighting line was not strengthened by reserves, nor were the cavalry placed in a suitable position. The war cries were the first indication as to how the action was going. That of the enemy was more animated and sustained. On the side of the Romans, the irregular, intermittent shout growing feebler at each repetition, betrayed their waning courage. Hearing this, the enemy attacked with greater vigor, pushed with their shields and brandished their swords. On the other side, their helmets drooped as the men looked round for supports. Men wavered and faltered and crowded together for mutual protection. At one moment, the standards, while holding their ground, were abandoned by the front rank. The next, they retreated between their respective maniples. As yet, there was no actual flight, no decided victory. 
the Romans were defending themselves rather than fighting. The Volscians were advancing, forcing back their line. They saw more Romans slain than flying. Chapter 38 Tempanius Now, in all directions, they were giving way. In vain did Sempronius, the consul, remonstrate and encourage. Neither his authority nor his dignity was of any avail. They would soon have been completely routed had not Tempanius, a decurio of cavalry, retrieved by his ready courage the desperate position of affairs. He shouted to the cavalry to leap down from their horses if they wished the commonwealth to be safe, and all the troops of cavalry followed his direction as though it were the order of the consul. Unless, he continued, this bucklered cohort check the enemy's attack, there is an end of our sovereignty. Follow my spear as your standard. Show Romans and Volscians alike that no cavalry are a match for you as cavalry, no infantry a match for you as infantry. This stirring appeal was answered by shouts of approval, and he strode on, holding his spear erect. Wherever they went, they forced their way, holding their bucklers in front, they made for that part of the field where they saw their comrades in the greatest difficulty. In every direction where their onset carried them, they restored the battle, and, undoubtedly, if so small a body could have attacked the entire line at once, the enemy would have been routed. Chapter 39 As it was impossible to check them in any direction, the Voskian commander gave a signal for a passage to be opened for this novel cohort of targeteers, until, by the impetus of their charge, they should be cut off from the main body. As soon as this happened, they were unable to force their way back in the same direction as they had advanced, as the enemy had massed in the greatest force there. When the consul and the Roman legions no longer saw anywhere the men, who had just been the shield of the whole army, they endeavored at all risks to prevent so many brave fellows from being surrounded and overwhelmed by the enemy. The Volskians formed two fronts. In one direction, they met the attack of the consul and the legions. From the opposite front, they pressed upon Tempanius and his troopers. As these latter, after repeated attempts, found themselves unable to break through to their main body, they took possession of some rising ground, and, forming a circle, defended themselves, not without inflicting losses on the enemy. The battle did not terminate till nightfall. The consul, too, kept the enemy engaged, without any slackening of the fight, as long as any light remained. Night at last put an end to the indecisive action, and, through ignorance as to the result, such a panic seized each of the camps that both armies, thinking themselves defeated, left their wounded behind and the greater part of their baggage and retired to the nearest hills. The eminence, however, which Tempanius had seized was surrounded till after midnight when it was announced to the enemy that their camp was abandoned. Looking upon this as a proof that their army was defeated, 
they fled in all directions wherever their fears carried them in the darkness. Tempanius, fearing a surprise, kept his men together till daylight. Then he came down with a few of his men to reconnoiter, and after ascertaining from the enemy's wounded that the Voskian camp was abandoned, he joyfully called his men down and made his way to the Roman camp. Here he found a dreary solitude. Everything presented the same miserable spectacle as in the enemy's camp. Before the discovery of their mistake could bring the Volskians back again, he collected all the wounded he could carry with him, and as he did not know what direction the dictator had taken, proceeded by the most direct road to the city. Chapter 40 Excitement in Rome Rumors of an unfavorable battle and the abandonment of the camp had already been brought. Most of all was the fate of the cavalry deplored. The whole community felt the loss as keenly as their families. There was general alarm throughout the city, and the consul Fabius was posting pickets before the gates when cavalry were descried in the distance. Their appearance created alarm, as it was doubtful who they were. Presently they were recognized, and the fears gave place to such great joy that the city rang with shouts of congratulation at the cavalry having returned safe and victorious. People flocked into the streets out of houses which had just before been in mourning and filled with wailings for the dead. Anxious mothers and wives, forgetting decorum in their joy, ran to meet the column of horsemen, each embracing her own friends and hardly able to control mind or body for joy. The tribunes of the plebs had appointed a day for the trial of Marcus Postumius and Titus Quinctius on the ground of their ill success at Veii, and they thought it a favorable opportunity for reviving the public feeling against them through the odium now incurred by Sempronius. Accordingly, they convened the assembly, and in excited tones declared that the commonwealth had been betrayed at Veii by their generals, and in consequence of their not having been called to account, the army acting against the Volscians had been betrayed by the consul, their gallant cavalry had been given over to slaughter, and the camp had been disgracefully abandoned. Gaius Junius, one of the tribunes, ordered Tempanius to be called forward. He then addressed him as follows, quote, Sextus Tempanius, I ask you, would you consider that the consul Caius Sempronius commenced the action at the fitting moment or strengthened his line with supports, or discharged any of the duties of a good consul? When the Roman legions were worsted, did you, on your own authority, dismount the cavalry and restore the fight? And when you and the cavalry were cut off from our main body, did the consul render any assistance or send you succor? Further, did you on the following day receive any reinforcements, or... Did you and the cohort force your way to the camp by your own bravery? Did you find any consul, any army in the camp? Or did you find it abandoned and the wounded soldiers left to their fate? Your honor and loyalty, which have alone sustained the commonwealth in this war, 
require you to state these things today. Lastly, where is Caius Sempronius? Where are our legions? Were you deserted, or have you deserted the consul and the army? In a word, are we defeated, or have we been victorious? End quote. Chapter 41 The speech which Tempanius made in reply is said to have been unpolished, but marked by soldierly dignity, free from the vanity of self-praise and showing no pleasure in the inculpation of others. Quote, it was not, he said, a soldier's place to criticize his commander or judge how much military skill he possessed. That was for the Roman people to do when they elected him consul. They must not therefore demand of him what tactics a commander should adopt or what military capacity a consul should display. These were matters which even great minds and intellects would have to weigh very carefully. He could, however, relate what he saw. Before he was cut off from the main body, he saw the consul fighting in the front line, encouraging his men, going to and fro between the Roman standards and the missiles of the enemy. After he, the speaker, was carried out of sight of his comrades, he knew from the noise and shouting that the combat was kept up till night, and he did not believe that a way could have been made to the eminence which he had occupied, owing to the numbers of the enemy. Where the army was, he knew not. He thought that as he found protection for himself and his men at a moment of extreme peril in the nature of the ground, so the consul had selected a stronger position for his camp to save his army. He did not believe that the Volscians were in any better plight than the Romans. The varying fortunes of the fight and the fall of night had led to all sorts of mistakes on both sides. End quote. He then begged them not to keep him any longer as he was exhausted with his exertions and his wounds, and thereupon was dismissed amidst loud praises of his modesty no less than his courage. Whilst this was going on, the consul had reached the Labican Road and was at the chapel of Quius. Wagons and draft cattle were dispatched thither from the city for the conveyance of the army, who were worn out by the battle and night march. Shortly afterwards, the consul entered the city, quite as anxious to give Tempanius the praise he so well deserved as to remove the blame from his own shoulders. Whilst the citizens were mourning over their reverses and angry with their generals, Marcus Postumius, who, as consular tribune, had commanded at Veii, was brought before them for trial. He was sentenced to a fine of 10,000 asses. His colleague Titus Quinctius, who had been successful against the Volscians under the auspices of the dictator Postumius Tubertus, and at Fidene as second-in-command under the other dictator, Mamercus Aemilius, threw all the blame for the disaster at Veii on his colleague, who had been previously sentenced. He was acquitted by the unanimous vote of the tribes. It is said that the memory of his venerated father, Cincinnatus, stood him in good stead, as also did the now aged Capitolinus Quinctius, who earnestly entreated them not to allow him, with so brief a span of life left to him, 
to be the bearer of such sad tidings to Cincinnatus. End of section 25. Read by Linda Johnson, December 2021.